Sit down if you want to. Right in the middle of what's going on. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. Take a seat, young Skywalker. The middle children of history, man. Middle of the day, Alfred? Please, take a seat there. Right now, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Stop the middle, it's a base hit! Meeting in the middle. Fight, fight. They fought for the freedom of middle. 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 The middle of the middle of the middle. The middle of a war. This is freaking ridiculous. Why don't we have a seat to talk about? No, not the middle seat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Middle Seats Podcast, the best seat of the house for all things film and entertainment. I'm your host this week, Andrew Auger, and we are very happy to have you here at our fiesta. Let's meet the rest of our party attenders. He is the center of every fiesta. He's the one with the maracas in the corner, always shaking it, Mr. Nate Lungarini. <laughs> How can I be the center of the fiesta shaking maracas in the corner? Because everybody gravitates towards <laughs> you. That's what I'm saying. Like. In the corner. In the corner. <laughs> <laughs> All right, whatever floats your boat. And here comes the guy very who well. comes in with the obnoxious tubas ruining the party. It's Well, I was going to say, he's our resident Hita de Puta, Mr. Jake Hensler, and I'll let you go on Rosetta Stone to figure out what that means. <laughs> Much more clever than I was going to say. Jake, you're a good sport. But anyway, if you're joining us for the first time, the Middle Seats Podcast is indeed the best seat of the house for all things film and entertainment. Our show is divided into three segments. We start our night with Lobby Talk, where the crew takes turns talking about a topic that's been on their mind that has to do with film, television, or any other part of entertainment, and they talk about it like you would in the lobby of a movie theater. Then they move on to our news segment, where we dissect the biggest news of the week. It's not a huge week for news. We've got a couple of interesting things to talk about, though, with you. And then we move into our feature review of the biggest movie of the week. This week, it is of Pixar's Coco. So, guys... As I was kind of alluding towards, it was a slow news week last week because last week was Thanksgiving. How was everyone's Thanksgiving? How was everybody's Black Friday and Cyber Monday? Yeah, mine was good. Um, I went over to my Nana's house and we had a fantastic dinner. Great turkey, great everything. And I actually ate so much turkey that I had the classic pass out on the couch turkey nap moment <laughs> and i was i was out cold for a solid half hour after dinner uh those those uh what's it called the trist femine or whatever Tri the, the meat sweats no 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 just like the the thing that in turkey that makes you pass out what's it called an amphetamine i don't know no, no. none of your it's not an amphetamine no <laughs> <laughs> if, if everyone had to rate their uh thanksgiving dinners on the seat scale what would you give it five Golden Thrones. Five Golden <laughs> that, Thrones. That's tough for me. Honestly, I always, I always get a little gypped on Thanksgiving because I don't like potatoes. So <laughs> I don't, yeah. So like everybody makes like mashed, sweet, whatever. And I'm like, I don't like any of that. I don't like stuffing either. So That's I get more kind of, room for turkey though. You don't like yeah, stuffing? Yeah, I, mean, I, I eat plenty of turkey. I eat plenty of cornbread and all that, all that good stuff. But I look forward to the desserts. Stuffing? My aunt makes them. I love pumpkin pie. My aunt makes amazing chocolate chip cookies. So I look forward to that. Stuffing is a staple of Thanksgiving. I will not hear anything negative about stuffing. Anyway, we're not here to debate food. We're here to talk about movies. So we're going to shovel our butts back into the movie seats, and we're going to be talking about movies after a nice Thanksgiving. First, let's start with Lobby Talk. Let's all go to the lobby. You're in the lobby? What do you look like? I will blow up the block before you can make the lobby. So in honor of, of Coco, we decided here at Middle Seats that a good, a good lobby talk would be to discuss um, minority representation in Disney films. 
Um, so that, that's that's all kinds of stuff. We have you know Aladdin and Pocahontas from the olden days. We got Moana last year, Coco this year. You know they're they have all kinds of good representation. We wanted to just discuss how good of you know how good or bad of a job, depending on how we feel that they are that they're doing. Um, so whoever wants to take the the floor from there, our resident animated guy can go first. Are we referring to Aladdin as the olden days now? It was nineteen ninety two. What yeah, I'm going to talk about, us. what I'm talking about with the, I mean, yes, okay, factually, it is indeed the olden days, Jake. That is correct. It is an old, uh-huh. yes. But when I think of the olden days, I think of the days where Disney was getting this wrong. And this was back in the Dumbo era, in the Snow White and the Seven Doors era, in the Song of the South era, where some of their um, animated endeavors were not only like towing the line with basically all white characters and no representation of any other minority cultures, but they were blatantly racist, like those crows and Dumbo, especially, um, and then the whole zippity doodah fiasco with Song of the South, which of course is a mix between animation and live action. Um, so seeing how far they've come is really refreshing, especially I would say in the last 15 years or so. Uh, Pocahontas, however you feel about that movie per se, Felt like a, a shift, and then you had Mulan, you have Lilo and Stitch. Um, we're opening this up to Pixar, too, and Coco is a really good example of minority representation. Um, but it's important that with the times changing, that these uh, studios are bringing it upon themselves to represent all of their audience. And I, I hats off to Disney for finally getting that aspect right after years and years of getting it wrong. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think... Pocahontas is such a weird example because it it tries to have this this shift that you're talking about where where you're looking at it with a little bit more of a modern eye towards a representation um but at the same time they completely sidestep a lot of the historical problems that all these white people moving into America were at the time and treat it as a happy-go-lucky love story by the end of it. Um, And the conflict of the movie, obviously, is definitely closer to historical context, but it's not quite there. No, not at all. Um, (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) I think the best representation that Disney movies have seen are the ones that aren't trying to... aren't making it the focal point of the movie. I think of stuff like, like Lilo and Stitch, where you have this cool culture... And the movie is exploring that culture in a new way that only animation can provide. Uh, the other one that, off the top of my head, that does a really good job of this was Moana this year, where the movie is exploring the culture. And I think that's what Disney does really, really well, is bringing audiences that might not be exposed to that sort of thing to have a greater understanding of the world. So yeah, like Andrew was saying, it was um, it's really good to see Disney not not sticking to their their Dumbo days as far you know a lot of people forget about that it's interesting you brought it up because um I certainly certainly forgot about it it's basically um, blackface to be completely honest if yeah, you even look at the design come of the in feather form yeah. yeah yeah they've come they've come a way way long ways since like even even one of the moments I think of that sticks out in movies like Moana when when the grandmother takes the the form of the stingray you know that's all and in the very beginning when she's giving the the stories on those um those woven cloths with the monsters on them and stuff. Just just little things like that that they add in really, really add a lot to the story, but also brings really good awareness to the to the culture and stuff. 
and not making it Hawaiian, technically Polynesian, right? Yes. Right. Things like that are really, really important. Mm-hmm. One thing that you brought up, Drew, in the orig- original prompt there was uh, Snow White. And when you first mentioned it, I'm like, what are you talking about? And then as I realized what you were referring to, there are no representation from any other races other than white in that movie. There's no representation of any other race until I'm pretty sure until Jungle Book. I don't think there's any, and that's the sixties and Snow White came out in 1939. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is definitely interesting. And looking even at some stuff like star Wars in the last, last few years, we kind of have the magic school bus effect where we have a little bit of everybody showing up in the cast um, where we have not only a female lead, but a black co-lead, which I think is a really cool thing. And I'm glad that we're at that point in society where we that's normal, even in big blockbusters. Absolutely. These Disney animated movies, they kind of have a responsibility because animated movies are what we grow up watching a lot of the time. So the there are one or two things that an animated movie could do to kind of educate a child about the outside world. It could portray this bubble where it's all just people that look like them, that look like the majority of the population that they're surrounded by. Or it could tell a story where it opens up the entire international realm and gives these kids a look at what the world is actually like from a different point of view. Um, And I think that's infinitely more important, especially when you're growing up, to know that, hey— Not everyone is exactly like me. People come from different customs, from different cultures. And I think, Nate, you hit it when you said the movies that do it the best are not the ones that exactly draw too, too much attention to it. They make it a part of their culture, of of their themes, while also making a universally entertaining film. Lilo and Stitch does that really well. Moana does that really well. The Princess and the Frog does that excellently. Mulan, too. Mulan also has this awesome... um this awesome female lead that a lot of people can relate to. So not only is it, um, you know, minority representation, it's got an awesome, awesome female lead way, way before it's time. Like, like it's really relevant and understandable now, but to do that, when did Milan come out? 97 ish. Yeah. I'm pretty, 97 or 98. So something like that. That's, that's really, really, you know, ahead of its time. That's a great, um, a great thing that Disney did, you know, yeah. 20 years ago. It's Disney providing a very valuable service to kids growing up. Um, and, People are going to be better off for it having grown up with Princess and the Frog, having grown up with Moana, and realizing earlier that different backgrounds make this world what it is. Um, yep. And I and I really think – I really applaud Disney and Pixar for finally heading in that direction, even if it took them longer than it probably should have. Anyway, mm-hmm. I, I think we've kind of hit on this topic as best as we can right now. We're going to revisit it at a different point in time, possibly in our Cocoa Review, possibly later. But that'll do it for our lobby talk this week. It's time to move into our news segment. And this just in, a news break special report. I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. So guys, typically Thanksgiving weekend and the, the week leading up to Thanksgiving is typically a slow news week in movies and TV and, and the entertainment realm. And this was no exception. Um, but some interesting tidbits that we saw from throughout the week. The first one we're going to talk about, of course, uh, the culmination of Marvel's three phases will be Avengers 4. Um, that comes out in 2019. We've got, of course, Avengers 3 next year with Avengers Infinity War. Um, a big Vanity Fair article came out earlier uh, today when we're recording this. Um, I encourage both of you guys to check it out. It's this great spread about the rise of Marvel and uh, Kevin Feige and his rise as a producer and what he's like behind the scenes. 
Um, they got the photo shoot with 80 members of the cast of Avengers Infinity War in there. It's a crazy, crazy uh, well-done article. Um, but the big tidbit to come from that is that Marvel certainly is not done after Avengers 4. Avengers 4, according to Fahey, feels like a finale. Uh, that's because a lot of the characters will probably be saying goodbye to, whether their um, contracts are up as actors or if they're going to be biting the dust. Obviously, there's no any kind of um, insinuation who is leaving and who's staying. Um, but the article says that after Avengers 4, Marvel has 20, that's 2-0, 20 movies planned. Now, this is no this is no new news per se, them doing this kind of thing. Um, following the release of The Avengers, we found out they had movies planned until about 2023 uh, after the big, big success and box office smash hit that the original Avengers was. So, I mean, they've always been known for planning ahead. But guys, 20 movies. Um, so I'm going to throw it to you, Nate, first. What do you think of that specific number um, spread out probably through 15 to 20 years? And are there any stories off the top of your head that you'd like to see included in those 20? Last week, we kind of took a dump on DC and the whole uh, DC Extended Universe for having 18 movies planned with no direction to go. So is Disney in the right for having 20 Marvel movies planned ahead? And... I I don't really think so. <laughs> if this is going to be a universe-wide reboot after Avengers 4, they're going to be kind of in the same boat as DC now, just with a much better reputation, um, assuming everything is fine and dandy for the rest of the MCU. So hopefully they're just doing it. They're doing it right. They're getting good actors. They're getting good stories. They're getting original stories put together, and it'll all work out for them. 20 movies seems really excessive to me, though. I feel like we're going to see oh, a easily. lot of changes to that lineup in the next couple of years. They're definitely allowed to do it more than DC is, in my opinion, but the 20 is just unnecessary. There's no way you can plan for that. Like, things are going to change. Audiences are going to react differently to characters, and you're going to have to shuffle things around to put that guy in the spotlight, take this one back. Like, there's going to be all kinds of stuff to mess around. I feel like 20, 20 movies has to be very, very tentative with a lot of leeway. I don't, I, you guys are kind of off the mark here. I feel like we're missing where they have the basis for the next generation here. Now, let me be clear. When I'm when I'm, we're saying that Avengers 4 is a finale, it's not a hard reboot. Um, it's going to be the end of, like, that first generation will be graduating, it feels like. Um, we might, mm -hmm. We're probably going to be seeing a lot less of Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Black Widow, Hawkeye. Those characters are probably going to kind of fade into the sunset, whether in a good or bad way. Um, but Marvel has already been doing the legwork for these next 20 movies to plan them out. They have Spider-Man, who already has his own solo film and is hitting the ground running. They have Black Panther coming up. They have Doctor Strange, Captain Marvel, Ant-Man. That is your next generation right there. So you take those 20 movies, you give each of them two sequels. So that's about eight or nine right there. And then you expand beyond that, and you just add new characters to the mix. So 20 sounds like a lot, but if you're thinking about these characters who are already previously developed, that's really not that much. Like, all well and good, but, but you can't just keep on fueling on sequels forever. Actors are going to get tired. I can't see Benedict Cumberbatch doing more than three or four of these. 
because um, he's a good actor in his own right and is going to want other stuff to do. Well, I'm pretty sure he's under contract for six. Yeah, but then that's two movies right there with the Avengers stuff, right? Yeah. Does Thor 3 count? Like, that's a that's a cameo. <laughs> so even if his contract is six movies, he's only going to have maybe two major films with him as a central character. Am I wrong there? No, probably not. We'll see. I mean. So, I, again, I just... I feel like it's it's good to plan, and it's good to have a plan and a direction for the franchise to go. We hounded on DC for not having that. Um, why am I angry at Mar- Marvel for planning, I guess? Now I'm really thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, for real. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I just I don't want them to exhaust superheroes Here, at the end of the day. Here's what I think you're doing. You're trying to be fair, because last week we spent all of our time, you know, kind of poo-pooing DC, like you said. Um, but their mistakes are not in concept because they planned 18 movies. It's that they're not taking the time to set the foundations. And Marvel has now, this is the, the reason they write this Vanity Fair article is because we're about to hit a decade of MCU movies, Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. A decade. They've earned the right, I think, to plan ahead and go into the deeper parts of their universe. Um, If DC had started working along that way, then yes, we'd be much more positive on it. So I see what you're trying to do. Um... Personally, I think they've earned the right to put down these 20 movies tentatively because they dominate the, the film world right now. There are there are a lot of different versions of these characters, like Miles Morales as Spider-Man. Haven't yes, seen that. Really, really um, good point. Yes. In the in the comics, Thor is a woman right now. Have you know, they could do that. Um there's a bunch of smaller characters, you know, people named like like Moon Knight and uh, uh Gia or Guillotine. Um, like there's there's a lot of smaller characters that they could introduce as well. It's gonna be interesting moving forward just because we haven't seen this in film before. And that is the fact that this superhero genre is just becoming so inflated with characters and lore and it's treated as kind of unsustainable right now, and I don't know how long it's gonna go. <laughs> We're in a very serialized um movie world where people eat up content. And it's working out well. Maybe it'll work out well for the next 20, 50 years. I don't know. I, I think until they have a major flop, they're just going to keep at it. Yeah, wow. We found we got a lot out of that. That was a lot of talking about speculation and literally just talking about a number. But <laughs> we did a good job with it. That just shows you the power of the Marvel Cinematic Universe right now, that it gets us speculating and debating like this. A movie that was on top of the world a decade ago. We just talked about how the MCU turned 10 years old. Avatar is almost 10 years old. It is turning 10 in 2009 it's already 2017 here so everybody's been asking well i guess the two people that actually have been anticipating yeah, been avatar a, a couple 2 people asking the couple <laughs> people have been asking where's avatar 2 um if you had asked that in 2009 it would have been a different thing because avatar made that movie was made 2.7 billion with a b dollars worldwide it is the highest grossing movie of all time if you don't adjust for inflation because then yada 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 gone with the wind blah 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 and it is the second highest grossing movie of all time in North America behind just Star Wars The Force Awakens. Avatar 2, following the success of the original Avatar, was dated originally for 2014, December of 2014. Huh. It's now 2017, and we have not seen Avatar, Avatar 2. Uh, the release date right now for Avatar 2 is 2020, December 2020. The release date for Avatar 3 is December 2021. That's because those two movies are shooting back-to-back. 
They're shooting simultaneously. AKA God help those actors. Yeah, it's it's the whole Lord of the Rings thing. It's the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels thing. It's the Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions. They shoot it at the same time. But now we had heard about how Avatar 2 and 3 would come out and then we'd get Avatar 4 and 5 shooting back to back, which you want to talk about ambitious. Does he even have a script uh, for all that? I don't know. Dude. Um, but James Cameron commented on that and even he had a little bit of a tone of slow your roll. Here's a quote from him. Let's face it. If Avatar 2 and 3 don't make enough money, there's not going to be a 4 and 5. They're fully encapsulated stories in and of themselves. It's built around the five films to a greater kind of meta-narrative, but they're fully formed films in their own right. So basically he's saying, even though Avatar 2 through 5 exist as this big overarching narrative, they work as self-sustained movies. And just because Avatar 2 and 3 are coming doesn't mean 3's going to end on a cliffhanger that 4 and 5 have to come. Um, So guys... Are we still going to be into Avatar by movie three, let alone movie five? Um, and do you think they waited too long, Jake? Um, I think the wait, yeah, I think the wait's a little crazy. People, I only saw Avatar the one time in theaters, actually. I haven't seen it since. Um, but I remember I remember liking it a lot when I first saw it. I haven't seen it, you know, it's been a while, but a local and global phenomenon. Every Basically, everybody went to see it. It made stupid, stupid amounts of money. But I think 2014 would have been a, or even 2012, 2014, that would have been a good time to get a second one out. Nobody, nobody cares. Not a lot of people remember anymore. It, by, if, by the, the first one set, the second one is set for 2020. Yeah. People are going to be like, oh, okay. Like, cool, cool, I guess. I guess I'll have to revisit the first one. Like, it's, it's old. And I don't think, I don't think it's going to make nearly the same amount. Because also, um, didn't it, it it kind of revolutionized um visual imagery and stuff like that, right? It was what it was the forefront of the big 3D craze was the most important thing. Right. I mean I, the the CGI was huge and everything, but the the 3D is what really put that total over the edge. Right. And that and that's that's some of the aspect that blew people away. I don't think 2 and 3 are going to have that appeal like the first one did. I think the the 3D aspect of this movie is the defining feature of Avatar that separates it from other big trilogies or uh, universes like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings ever did. Uh, Those franchises worked because they embedded themselves in our culture. Everybody knows what what a lightsaber is. Um, Everybody has heard like the My Precious meme from Lord of the Rings. And those are just great movies in their own right. Avatar was a fine movie that just did something different. It was a gimmick to have that 3D aspect of the movie. And it was like the first major 3D movie that I ever saw in theaters. And the first movie that I said, huh, I don't really like this whole 3D thing. It looks kind of cool, but it's not really great. And I think that's just it. The... The fact that we don't see movies in 3D anymore, they're very unpopular worldwide, um, means that any sort of cultural fingernails that Avatar had on us aren't going to be hanging on for too much longer. I think it's way too late for a sequel, and I doubt that these next two movies are going to be a success, even if they get made at all. <laughs> well, I do I do think Avatar is better than just a fine movie, even with, when you take the 3D stuff out of it. I think I think it's a good movie. Um, it's 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 quite derivative of a lot of other uh, movies that have come out before it. Um, but it it is pretty visually astonishing, even if you take the 3D gimmick out. However, that 3D gimmick is a big part of why the movie made 
became the cultural phenomenon that it became for a little bit. It, it exists in kind of this weird time capsule where Avatar is the second highest grossing movie of all time here in North America. And like Nate, you said, it is not a part of the cultural zeitgeist at all. People don't go like and talk about Avatar. They don't go to Avatar conventions. It's not, it's just not, didn't catch on like that. But boiling down to it is, yes, I agree. They've waited way too long to even capitalize on that uh, time capsule that that movie really flourished in. It's, it's, it's far gone at this point. Um, so we shouldn't be talking about an Avatar 4 and 5. Honestly, we should just be talking about if an Avatar 2 is a good idea, if it's a financially viable idea. If you just want to take the main cast alone, Sam Worthington is not the sizable actor that he even was back in 2009. He hasn't done anything. <laughs> this is like this is like if you were make Termin- a sequel to Terminator 2 Judgment Day, but you kept Eddie Furlong. Like, guess what? Eddie Furlong is not going to sell your movie. Yeah, I think they, they've definitely exhausted all of the goodwill that they had left after the original Avatar. Um, and yeah, it's never it's not going to touch the gross of the original. And I'd be surprised if it wasn't a flop, to be completely honest. Because you know the budget's <laughs> going to be big. But anyway, oh, yeah. that, that's, a, that's kind of exhausted our Avatar shit talking for the day. Let's move into our final story of the night here. Guys, we're going to talk about the Golden Globes. For a lot of casual movie fans, the Golden Globes is probably the second biggest awards show that they watch every year, uh, of course, behind the Oscars. Um, but the Golden Globes doesn't exactly have the best reputation within the critical realm of film going and the film industry in general. Um, and that I'm going to get into a little bit more why in a bit. But basically, what it boils down to overall is that they're known for some of their extremely weird choices of labeling and stuff. Um, and just picks for nominees. The poster child recently for this is labeling the Ridley Scott, Matt Damon drama, The Martian, as best comedy just because it had a lot, a little bit of comedic elements in it. It wasn't the most dark, depressing movie ever. Therefore, in the Golden Globes' eyes, it was the comedy. Um, along those similar lines, we get Jordan Peele's Get Out, which has been one of the biggest runaway hits of the year, um, a 99% of Rotten Tomatoes, the highest grossing film ever from a black director, one of the biggest independent films of all time. Um, it has comedic elements because Jordan Peele, of course, known for Key and Peele, the sketch comedy show, but overall, it is a pretty intense horror movie or a thriller or however you would label it. It's, it's, not, it's not a comedy is my point. Yet, it's being campaigned as eligible for the what? Best Comedy Musical Award at the Golden Globes. Now, guys, this is strange, obviously. Um, and I'll explain more about how the Golden Globes works when it gets to my turn. But based off the gut reaction, Nate, would you call Get Out a comedy or a mus- musical? Absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> Absolutely not. It It is it is definitely a thriller in my eyes. Like, it's not a blood and gore type horror, not even really a jump scare type of horror, but it is definitely not a comedy. Any sort of comedic moments in the movies are more like awkward comedy or dark humor, but to call it a comedy is just dishonest. And there were people that were talking about how uh, they labeled The Martian as a comedy to give it a higher chance of winning. Um, and I don't think that's the case here. The direct quote from uh, from Peel is, at the end of the day, call get out horror, comedy, drama, action, or documentary. I don't care. 
And I think that's just kind of fitting to the tone of the Golden Globes uh, as an award show. <laughs> it's just not that important. <laughs> it really, really isn't. There aren't enough categories in it to be worth anybody's time to submit for best picture of whatever it is. It's it's kind of all for fun and honestly a waste of your time. Well, I remember um a few years ago, uh, DiCaprio DiCaprio won best actor in a comedy slash musical for Wolf of Wall Street. And on his on his speech, it was like I never thought I'd win one of these for a, a comedy, but you know, okay. And then he just kind of you know continued on with his speech. But I was like, what are the what are the Golden Globes doing? And this is one of the most outrageous ones. Get out just because there's comedic relief with the TSA agent doesn't mean it's a comedy. Like, like the guy has moments and he certainly, he certainly nails them. He is funny in those moments, but the movie is not a comedy. It's not a happy movie. It is, it is, it is dark. It is psychologically thrilling. It is intense. It is engaging, but I would not label it a comedy. So let's, let's do a little bit of by the numbers here. And, and Nate, Jake, take out your notebooks. This will be a pop quiz at the end. So write all of this down. So let's talk about what the, the Golden Globes are based off of. Um, they are run by what is known as the Foreign Hollywood Press Association. The Academy Awards are built up and voted on by the Academy, which is thousands of members of the film industry. Um, hundreds of the specific craft are voting on those specific awards. So all the actors in the Screen Actors Guild are voting on actors. All of the directors in the Directors Guild are voting on directors. Same thing with cinematographer, production design. It's thousands and thousands of people voting on those awards. And these are qualified people to give out these awards. So when somebody wins an award there, it means a lot because you're being honored and recognized by a ton of your peers. The point I'm trying to make is that the Academy Awards has relevance because so many people vote on it. In contrast, the Golden Globes are voted on by and I don't know the exact number, it's under 100 people. So that is a laughably small um, body size. And take it, take it this way. Jake, Nate, you're both up for an award. Um, I'm winning. Yeah, Nate's winning by, Nate's winning by, <laughs> Nate's winning by five votes. Jake takes 10 of the Foreign Press Association to Bali for a fun weekend. Maybe not Bali. There's, Yo, Bali, there's a volcano going off in Bali right now. There's a, vol- there's a volcano going off in Bali right now. Let's say Hawaii. You take them on a cruise, right? Suddenly, those 10 voters really want to vote for Jake. So it's much easier to rig an election in the Golden Globes. That's part of the reason why they're a joke. The main reason why they're a joke here is that they'll nominate anyone just to get them to show up to the awards. Uh, some of the biggest actors in Hollywood have been nominated for movies that weren't even good just so that they would show up and get drunk yeah. at their award show. It's just it's just one big fake Hollywood party. It's not an award show. And they will take any road they can to honor some of the big movies of the year that people have seen so that they see it. What is one of the biggest movies of the year? Get Out. So that's the reason they're campaigning it like this. And they probably thought that the best drama category is going to be so tightly packed this year that Get Out has enough flexibility that they could throw it in there, which is completely wrong thinking. But they've been doing this for years. So it's kind of like you can't even get mad at them anymore. It's like when your dog eats something that you left on the counter. Like, you're more just you're more just disappointed than anything. Um, mm-hmm. So that's my dissection <laughs> of why the Golden Globes are a complete and utter waste of time that nobody should take carries. I'm actually really glad you went into that. I think it's important that people hear this because I always have right. trouble explaining and it's, it. It's important to, to note. 
So when you watch the Golden Globes, watch them with a grain of salt if you couldn't get that already from this best comedy labeling of Get Out. Or just watch movies instead. <laughs> or just watch movies instead. Speaking of movies that we watched recently, that'll do it for our news segment and move into our review of Coco. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. No one was going to hand me my future. It was up to me to reach for my dream and make, make it, it come true. All right, who's in there? I'm sorry. What's going on? Dante! You gotta stay with me, boy. You're all really out there. That was a piece of the trailer of Coco. It is the 19th theatrical release by Pixar Animation. It's directed by Lee Unkrich, who made Toy Story 3. Um, before we get into our main review of Coco, every Pixar movie has a short before it, usually from in-house. It's about four to five minutes long, and it's a little cute thing that they use to push the limits of their animation. Even the bad movies have pretty good shorts in front of them. This time around, they decided to... The parent company, Disney, decided to air one of their direct-to-DVD, basically, shorts dealing with Frozen. Now, Frozen came out in 2013. It's got a sequel coming out in a couple years or so. Um, and to keep it in the mind of young kids everywhere, they put a 22-minute short called Olaf's Frozen Adventure in front of Coco. Ugh. So it's a problematic thing here for many, many reasons. Um, first of all, you don't get to Coco until 40 minutes in. To when you're so if if it says Coco starts at eight ten, your movie does not actually start until eight fifty because of this Frozen short. Second, this breaks a Pixar tradition that has been going on since A Bug's Life. Um, and third, this is the kind of direct to DVD bullshit that they, Disney was doing when they stopped making movies people wanted to see in the theater. This was prime Brother Bear Home on the Range era garbage they were putting out to home video. Um, this short is stupid, it's lackluster, it doesn't have really memorable music at all. Ugh. It's just an utter waste of time. And I know the panel has opinions, so go ahead and ravage this thing. Ugh. Start, Jake. <laughs> uh, I was, I'm, I'm so, Nate saw this um, before I did, so he warned us a little bit that this, he didn't necessarily say like how good or bad it was, I don't think. He just said, heads up, there's a Frozen short and it's over 20 minutes. And I was like, What? Are you kidding me? And I, I, and, I, I, and I knew I put my sunglasses on and I was like, bring it on. <laughs> so I didn't, I had no idea. So I knew there was a shortcoming. I didn't know the details though. I saw Frozen once. I thought it was good, not great. I didn't love it. This was so obnoxious. I was done with this after two minutes. I was, I, ugh. Go, if, if, if your movie says 8.15, go at 8.40. Yeah, this, it was just a colossal waste of time. Really? The writing was so uh, so cringy for me. I, so I have two stupid. younger sisters, and they didn't even like them that much. But this movie reminded me so much of the straight to TV Barbie movies in terms of <laughs> writing, in terms of um, the songs. It was awful, especially as an older guy in the theater for for a Pixar movie. Just kind of insulting to have to sit through this thing. Um, I totally feel you. I was there alone as well. <laughs> oh my god, it was it was it was awful. I hated it. I hated every second of it. 
I think I like Frozen more than both of you. I I think I do think Frozen is excellent. It was good for um especially when it came out. Um yeah. in terms of just being a nice different take on the Disney princess trope. Yeah, I think it's the best Disney princess movie specifically they've ever done. Um it hits all the highs that those kind of movies need to. It's a great time. But this shows what this what Frozen could have been. Um and I want to get into a little bit of the problematic things putting it in front of Coco says to me about what Disney's doing. What Disney is doing here by putting Olaf's Frozen Adventure in front of Coco is showing that they did not have confidence in Coco to make money on its own, which is ridiculous because we'll get into the quality of Coco in a bit, but it's a Pixar brand, first of all. But I really think there was something to be said that this is a movie led by Mexican characters with no big A-list voice actors or anything, um, with a little bit of a difficult subject to kind of preach to kids about the Day of the Dead and letting your loved ones go and yada, yada, yada. Um, I think it's kind of spineless and a little bit awkward of them to not put their throw their full support behind Coco by putting this promotional stunt in front of it. I, I just I had a real problem with that. That's really interesting. I didn't think about that. Oh, it's exactly what it is. It's making sure they get as many butts in seats and they're thinking, oh no, little Tommy and Susie aren't going to go see Coco on, the, on their own because it's not interesting to them. Let's put Frozen in front of it. I agree. It's a pretty scummy move on Disney's part. For real. And especially because it's not good. If it was if it was good and only 10 minutes long, I wouldn't have a problem with it. But the Frozen animation is so lazy and so poorly written, acted, sung, the whole nine yards. It's really? it's a colossal totally waste of agree. everyone's time. And Disney has a lot of nerve for kind of getting on Pixar for taking a risk with a movie that just happens to be very culturally diverse and celebrates a culture that a lot of the majority of Americans aren't. They have a lot of nerve of not having confidence in that, but then having confidence in huge risks like Tomorrowland and John Carter and not pulling a stunt like this with that and eating the bullet on that, but yet putting this in front of Coco and expecting that this will help boost its performance, which guess what? It didn't. First of all, not only is everybody ranting about this short on the internet, but it's actually been pulled from Mexican theaters because Mexican audiences were so impatient they just wanted to see Coco and they got this Olaf crap. Good. I'm about it. Let's 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 rate the short. Let's let's rate the short on a seat seat. I I don't know. It's 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 hard because it's not a full length thing. It's clearly meant to be on ABC Family. Yeah. I give Disney a sleazy outhouse in itself. <laughs> not not the short itself, but like. What do you think? Nate? Oh yeah, hands down, sleazy outhouse. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm going. I don't quite go that far, but like, but like close. Like it's a satur. Not a damp lawn chair. It's a saturated lawn chair. Like this is a disgusting chair to sit in it's just not smelly but it's you do not want to sit in it <laughs> anyway and, and it's a shame because the pixar shorts are some of my favorite parts of the pixar experience mm. uh there are some fantastic pixar shorts oh, yeah. piper absolutely... the volcano one um oh i don't like i don't like the volcano one let's <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually kind of enjoyed the volcano no, i like one. the volcano one um, yeah pixar uh my favorite pixar one that off the top of my head is the day and night one um that played in front of toy story 3 that was um, all right if I you guys that saw one. it you that was my favorite one there's a That's lot good. of great ones, is what I'm trying to say. Anyway, getting into Coco specifically. Like I said, it is the 19th release from Pixar, founded in 1995. 
um, with Toy Story and, of course, has had a string of critical successes and hits. It's been a little bit more up and down since probably 2011 for them. But they're back with a vengeance, directed by Lee Anchorage, who made Toy Story 3. This is his second helmed film. It's based around the Mexican holiday Dia de Muertos, which is known as the Day of the Dead in English. That's where a bunch of Mexican citizens pay tribute to their lost loved ones. It's a beautiful holiday, beautiful sentiment. Um, the story revolves around that. It follows 12-year-old Miguel Rivera. He's voiced by a newcomer, Anthony Gonzalez. He's an aspiring musician. He loves music. He looks up to Ernesto de la Cruz, played by Benjamin Bratt. He's the most famous musician in the history of Mexico. But Miguel's family won't let him perform or listen to music because the father of his great-grandmother, Coco, he left. He took off on the road. He basically abandoned the family to follow music. So now they want him to work in the shoe factory. No music. He can't even go to the square and listen to the mariachi bands. Um, after a couple big revelations, an act of rebellion and defiance brought about by the disapproval of his family, Miguel tries to steal Ernesto de la Cruz's guitar on the Day of the Dead, and he ends up in the land of the dead through some kind of mystical circumstances. He meets his dead ancestors and needs to find his way back to the land of the living before it's too late. And then you've got your usual kind of adventure from there with the little flashes of Pixar flair and the emotion and the music and the colors and all of the wonder and joy that comes from a Pixar film. Anyway, I've set it up as much as I can with Coco. Let's get into what we thought about it. Nate Lungarini, what do you think of Coco? Where does it rank on the Pixar scale for you? Let's hear it. Oh boy. Uh, I need to, I need to see this one again before I can fully put it on the Pixar scale in terms of top rankings. But this was this was a joy. This was a delight to watch. I went in knowing basically nothing and honestly not even really being that excited to see it. But within the first five minutes, I fell in love. This is an awesome world that they explore. The main character, Miguel especially, is so much fun and so relatable as a young kid. He's definitely immature. But he's not dumb, which is really hard to write for, honestly. And just seeing a smart young character go through these pretty mature themes was a delight to watch on screen. Um, visually, it's one of Pixar's best, um, but almost everything they do is great. So that's just more chocolate syrup on top of ice cream at this point. Um, but all in all, I thoroughly enjoyed Coco. I liked it a lot. Gadget. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna mirror Nate a little bit, but not not to the total extent. So I went in knowing basically next to nothing as well. I didn't really even know the plot much, um, but it took me a little bit more than five minutes to get into it. it. Took me like 25 minutes to get into it. I wasn't quite enjoying myself in the intro. If I'm gonna be honest, I don't know what it was. I just wasn't captivated in the beginning. I wasn't all that interested. It felt a little a little generic. We've heard the story before. You know, somebody wants to do something they're passionate about, but it's wrong the families. I'm not allowed to do it. Like, I feel like I've heard it before. Um, so it took me a little while. But once he, once Miguel enters the Day of the Dead world, I was instantly hooked. As soon as they enter that, everything they did from there on, story-wise and visually, I thought it was really good. I really liked all of it as soon as they entered that world until the end. Um, and like Nate said, from for me, from then on, it was a joy. Vi animation was really good. Story was really good. Um, you know, I was pleasantly surprised knowing next to nothing about it. And in, honestly, if we weren't reviewing it, I probably wouldn't have bothered to see it on my own. Um, but I'm really glad I did. I'm really glad I, you know, we're reviewing it and I took the time because it ended up being, you know, a pleasant surprise for me for sure. Um, yeah, I'm going to echo a lot of the same sentiments here. I think I'm closer on the Nate 
uh, side of the scale. I, I thought Coco was a really wonderfully touching and gr- really good animated movie. Um, it is beautiful to look at. It has these beautiful, vibrant colors, um, especially in The Land of the Dead, which is absolutely flooring and one of the best um, settings that Pixar has ever put together. Um, one of the best settings ever put together in animation, I really think. Yeah, it's really um, marvelous. Yeah, gorgeous goes without saying with Pixar, though. Um, it's whether or not these days they hit with the emotion. And a lot of the times recently, um, they it's been a little bit more up and down in that regard. Not here. This movie is really flooring and emotional, especially in its third act. Um, it's really well. It's a really well-told, simple story. It's got some really fun characters. It's got some really nice and complex characters. You pretty much like everyone. Um, it it's really mature in a lot of ways too. That I'll get a little bit more into in spoilers. Um, one of the things I really liked about this movie is how there's this conflict between music and the family and Miguel being kind of caught in the middle. But you can't say one person is right or wrong because you see where everybody in this conflict comes from as the story unfolds and we learn more and more details about it. It's got minor quibbles. It's got minor problems. It's a little bit predictable, kind of like Jake uh, alluded to. Um, And there are some slight problems with the eventual reveal of the villain, which I won't spoil for here. Um, But yeah, this movie, this movie's wonderful and thoroughly, thoroughly entertaining. Um, And I think middle to upper echelon of Pixar for me. It's not quite the masterpiece that they've hit in the past. I was going through my list of top 50 recently of all time movies in general, not just animated movies, not just Pixar movies, movies in general. And Pixar has about five or six entries in there. Um, So they've hit some real high highs for me. It doesn't quite get there, but this is one that I'm definitely going to want to revisit over and over again like I do with those other ones. Um, it's a really fantastic movie, especially for families. Yeah, absolutely for families. It um and it, it was one of those that really grew on me as it went along. Like at the first 25, 30 minutes, I was feeling not not overjoyed, but not bad. It was just like it was fine. And then like I said, Day of the Dead, I was like, all right, this is getting this is getting good. I'm really starting to enjoy this. And then the third act, I thought I was like, they wrapped it up so well. Like every every like 25, 30 minutes or so, it got a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. Um and like Andrew said with the animation, um, beautiful. The the spiritual animals, I get, I forget what they're called. Spirit guides. The tiger, lion, dragon thing. <laughs> Crazy. Awesome. Like, I loved that. Um, that was beautiful. And uh, the city, the first time we see the city, they, they reveal it to you right before the movie. But the city was beautiful. Um, just all kinds of stuff. So I want to talk a little bit about the maturity of this this movie. Um, you, can, you can see it right off the poster that there's going to be skeletons walking around in this movie. And maybe that's off-putting for someone who doesn't understand what it is um, going into it. And, oh no, my kid isn't going to want to see that. It's about dead people. But this movie just does such a great job integrating it into the world in a way where it's not scary for for a young kid um, and makes them feel like characters. It is a hard thing to do, and I'm honestly amazed at how well Pixar makes these characters because each person that you meet each of Miguel's ancestors in the land of the dead is really really fun and different and you can totally understand their motives in addition to our main characters and I I fell in love with each and every one of them I thought they were all great I was was thinking that during the movie like 
skeletons is probably a pretty um, difficult, um, you know, those are difficult characters to kind of nail down for kids. But they they made these skeleton characters, which could be a little frightening, lovable and like really kind and warm hearted and interesting and compelling. And I just, you know, I remember thinking middle of the movie, like they made these skeleton characters really cool and friendly and intriguing. So, you know, hats off to Pixar again for that. You know, death is a very hard thing to tackle, and it's not something that Pixar has ever shied away from. Um, the one, of course, I'm thinking of that wrecks me every time is Up. Mm-hmm. Um, but Coco kind of rivals it with some of the themes that they tackle. Um, there are themes of regret. There's themes of grudges being held, neglect. Um, there's dealing with family members with Alzheimer's. Really complicated stuff for kids to grasp, yeah. told to them in a very innocent, very non-condescending but really, really beautiful and touching way. We were talking about earlier how um, with minority representation and everything and how um, Pixar has become and uh, Disney has become really good at kind of getting the conversation going about what the rest of the world is like for these kids that are kind of sheltered and possibly haven't seen other cultures before. Not only does Coco does that extremely well through its music, through its visuals, through some of its jokes that really feel authentically Mexican, that people around me were laughing, and I was just kind of like, <laughs> but I like totally didn't get it because like it's it's not it doesn't strike me as a culture, so it led me to want to read up on it more. Not only is it hitting those cultural points, it's also getting the conversation going about things that are going to be very important when you grow up, things that you you maybe you don't have to deal with right now as a kid, but this is a great way to introduce you to that, and it's a movie that in ten years. When you watch it again, if you were a kid and five years old when you watched it for the first time, if you revisit it at 15, you might be shocked at how much this movie was throwing at you while still giving you a thoroughly entertaining time. Um, and that's something I, I can go on for days <laughs> yeah. about what Pix, how Pixar does that extremely, extremely well. Um, but it is no exception here for sure. Absolutely. And see, this is why I, I like giving you the floor with animation more than myself because I don't always, like admittedly, I don't always think from a kid perspective when I watch these movies. Those kind of things in the moment miss me. Like sometimes when I think about it, I'll grasp how much it means for kids in the moment because it's, it's, you know, shifting your perspective isn't always easy. So in the moment, I'm just looking at it from me. But I forget, sometimes I forget what Pixar, these are kids' movies. Um so I'm, you know, I'm really glad you brought that up because I didn't think about that. I don't like calling them kids' movies. I like calling them family movies, okay, if that makes fair. sense. Because it appeals that's to fair. everyone. They do a really, really good job of that, which is why I get annoyed with shit like the Olaf stuff, which is clearly not meant for everyone. Well, actually, that's that's a good segue into what I wanted to talk about. Because um, the Frozen short suffers from a trope that plagues a lot of family movies or kids' movies or whatever you want to call it um, in modern times where the humor and jokes needs to be nonstop. Like, it's almost ADD to the point where everything needs to be grabbing your attention at all times. Coco is a relaxing movie. Like, don't get me wrong, there's action and there's um, really fun set pieces, but this movie takes its time. It doesn't need to rush you through the world because you get to actually breathe and enjoy it. There's a couple really beautiful scenes where Miguel's just playing the guitar in front of the TV. And they aren't boring to watch, but it's not a joke. You wouldn't get that from something like, say, the Lego movie, which is a good movie in its own right, but has a completely different tone. This movie 
doesn't need to explain the joke. There's still a lot of visual humor behind it, but it also just lets you breathe. Yeah, that's a really, really good way to put it. Um, because a lot of the humor and the laughs I got from it are things that the movie's not calling attention to. It, absolutely, you're right. There's a lot of stuff going on in the backgrounds. Um, I got a kick out of the dog. The dog made me laugh consistently. Just the way he moved, just the way he, like, you you were like, you look at him and like, what the fuck is wrong with this dog? But he's hilarious. <laughs> um, but the movie's not always drawing attention to him. You have to divert your eye from what's going on to see that. And yeah, it's a very subtle, very low-key movie. Um, I can't say good enough things about the m- music in this movie, um, whether it be Michael Giacchino's score or the, I don't know if they're original songs or some of them are probably original, some of them are real songs. Um, they're written by the same people who worked on Frozen, so of course they've got that kind of same, they're probably not as memorable as a Let It Go or something like that, but I've been listening to them pretty much all week since I've seen the movie. Um, but they, again, they add to that kind of low-keyness that Nate is talking about. It's a movie that makes you swoon more than anything. It doesn't get you hyped. It just kind of puts you in a nice, soothing, relaxing mood. Yeah, that, that's very true. These are, I, I, I kind of realized that in, during the movie as well. And they're like, like Nate was saying, it's an adventure. The kid is on, this kid is on an adventure. And, you know, some of the people he meets along the way help out in his comedic moments. And there's action, like Nate said. But there are just some, there's a lot of just really nice, almost kind of tender moments that, make up for what other animated movies would would put in with action. This is a good segue, I think, for, yeah, for you to give your, not your final thoughts, but your rating. And and then we'll move into our spoiler section, of course. Um, Before we get into our specific ratings, let's run down the seat scale, of course. Once again, if you're new here to the middle seats, we rate movies by the seat scale. Um, A movie that we think is all-time great or one of the best of the year gets a royal throne. Um, A movie that we think is really, really good um, gets a plush recliner. Then we've got a movie with some flaws that is overall enjoyable. We give that a wooden seat. Um, Damp Lawn Chair is the opposite of that. It is a movie that has many flaws but a couple of good things. And then a sleazy outhouse, which is just a big bucket of shit right next to Olaf's Frozen Adventure. (laughs) Anyway, Jake. Um, Jake, what would you give? This is – I'm going to have to go through like an encyclopedia and look up new adjectives and stuff. Um, But this is a a, a really, really – really good comfy warm-hearted plush recliner like i would absolutely recommend to pretty much everybody like wonderful story wonderful for all ages might be great if you know if it's not it's just shy it's pretty close to great with a bucket of popcorn you should you should see this in theaters um mainly because it's worth seeing but visually it's just it's visually out it's visually great the story's great um, the characters are all really good. There's just so many good things about it. For me, a lot of it was just it. It's slightly missing in in oomph to put it on that next level, and it took me a little while to get into personally. It took me like like 25 minutes to really start enjoying myself. But once I got there, I was all in. Nate, your turn. Uh, I I really really fell in love with this movie. Uh, it didn't take me it didn't take me the 25 minutes I fell in love in five, and. I think this movie gets my second royal throne of the podcast. I really, really enjoyed it. I think that it did everything that it wanted to do and made just such a great, unique story that we haven't seen before. The only cons I can think of is that some of the reveals aren't necessarily um, 
unexpected, especially because it's a family movie. They don't want to, they want don't want to pull like a twist ending <laughs> on on us. Um, as an older viewer, you're probably gonna catch up on on things before it's revealed to you in the plot. But that said, in terms of the structure, in terms of setting, in terms of character, everything this movie is fresh and unique, and it totally deserves it the praise that it's getting critically. Royal Throne for me, I loved it. Nate, I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad one of us went there. Um, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna quite go there. I do, I do really, really like this movie. I, I'm almost borderline saying I love it. Um, I'm close. It's, it is just the right brand of Pixar. It's Pixar working in kind of their B level, but like, I don't mean that as a knock at all. This isn't one, it's supposed to be one of their big home runs like The Incredibles or Finding Nemo or anything like that. It's supposed to be a gem of their lower tier, mm-hmm. closer to like a Ratatouille, I would say. Anytime we have the, oh, what's the best Pixar movie debate, it's not It's not going to be probably at the top of a lot of people's minds, but it's going to be one of those asides like, oh, remember Coco? Oh yeah, Coco's really underrated. I really enjoy that one. Um, and that's because it does all the things right that Pixar has been doing right for over 20 years now. Absolutely plush recliner. Very, very close to a royal throne. It's one of those plush recliners you're swooning in as you listen to Mexican guitar ballads. <laughs> anyway, that'll do it for our non-spoiler review of Coco. We are about to now delve into spoilers for the latest Pixar release. If you have not seen Coco, tune out now, look at the time codes, and go to our final thoughts and our wrap-up at the bottom. If you have seen Coco or you don't care about spoilers, join us in our spoiler section. Whoa! Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Excuse me, spoiler alert! So guys, I, I, I take it it wasn't very hard for you guys to figure out that Ernesto de la Cruz was the actual villain of this film. Um, you guys are smart. I'm giving you. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt here. Um, uh, the Pixar's message was to abandon your family in search of your dreams. <laughs> that wasn't gonna fly. No, no definitely not. Um, I think I have problems with how kind of on the nose it was. If that makes sense. So basically, the setup is Ernesto de la Cruz murdered Hector, who was actually related to Hector, played by Gil Garcia Bernal, really nicely, by the way. Um, we didn't even mention him at all in our yeah, he non-spoiler section. He did a great job. Um, I thought it was going to be annoying when we were first introduced, but he ended up being probably my second favorite in the movie, behind Miguel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but follow follow me on this. Do you think De La Cruz would be a more interesting villain if he was not a full-on murderer? If he was just a guy who was a phony He's not really a. He's not really this great big artist that everybody said he was. Um, and he never gave Hector his due cause, and Hector died of some other way. You see what I'm saying? He could still be the villain and try to prevent Hector from getting back, um, or Miguel from getting back to the land of the living, and ruining his legacy, um, because that's what his ultimate goal is anyway, right? That's what his. That's what his goal is. Is he more? Um, so I think him being a murderer was a little bit like wow okay um that's a little that's a little much if you know if you know what I mean I feel like it would have been more interesting and subtle if he was just really a big jerk in real life who became this monster in the afterlife so obsessed with his image do you guys do you guys follow what I'm saying I follow what you're saying and I agree to it to a certain extent but I really think it's important for Miguel to 
completely sever ties to that hero in his mind there. Um, because anything less than that, that little shade of gray, I just don't think works for his arc. He needs to be able to go back to his family, but still pursue music because it's what he loves to do. Not because he wants to aspire to be like his hero. I think that's what's really important. Okay, yeah, I, I certainly buy that, 100%. That makes sense. Um, and I and it's not a huge issue that was plaguing me or anything like that because the movie, it, it kind of, it bothered me for like a couple seconds uh, until the two of them get dropped into the like dungeon area with the water. Um, and mm. then it, from that moment on, this movie is basically flawless to me. Um, I love that, that, that scene where they go into the, the yeah, water Yeah, this movie thing. really yeah. re- I it repurposes that. Remember Me, which is the main through-line song, extremely beautifully well oh, throughout the I entire movie. I didn't see that part coming at all, and it was great. It was so beautiful. It's just, it's a, first of all, it's a wonderfully written song, but the way it takes on different meanings, from Ernesto de la Cruz using it as this, like, sexy ballad, to um, him using it as a lullaby, Hector using it as a lullaby for Coco, to Miguel using it for Coco as literally remember me like mm-hmm. unbelievably clever unbelievably beautiful and touching yeah. i got really choked up with that last scene with coco um i'm sure everybody who watches this movie will feel the exact same way it's it's more emotional than i think uh inside out was and people were bawling at that one uh disagree but <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i think the the part where Miguel and Hector are thrown into that kind of like crevice water pit thing. From then on, I was like, this movie is really, this movie is really something else. That's like, I think from then on was my favorite parts as well, like Andrew was saying. Um, and I think as far as uh, De La Cruz goes, I I do think the murder might have been slightly much. So maybe instead of Ernesto murdering him, he just, he like goes, he gets his point across, he ruins his legacy and maybe leaves him for dead instead. Because I think murdering him was just slightly like whoa right especially yeah. for like kids for, for kids murdering is like wow but leaving him and ruining his life even though it's obviously horrible it doesn't quite hit the nail on the car yeah i i murder. you see you see what i'm saying um and and it doesn't yeah. it doesn't i was a little surprised it doesn't really ruin him or anything like that for sure it, it still gets all no. the same points across i just think it makes him a little less interesting as a character himself um, but absolutely, Nate's 100% right about fulfilling the arc of Miguel. How good is the voice <laughs> yes. actor, Anthony Gonzalez? Um, this kid is going to... We're going to see this kid again. Absolutely, I yeah. think. Yeah, and I can't wait. <laughs> um, and one of, I... one of my big joys of this movie was the Un Poco Loco uh, song and dance number with him and Hector at the talent show or whatever it is. Um, yeah, it was really Where good. you just see how good of a voice this kid has. We haven't seen him sing through the entire movie. Um, but when he finally gets to sing, he's got some pipes. Um, and if he didn't, it, this could have been right. bad. <laughs> I mean, they probably wouldn't have cast him anyway, but <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I, I just really liked the role that music played in this movie. This did it in a completely different way. It wasn't out of place for the story. Um, cause it was just so central to the themes of Miguel's growing up here. Um, so both of you guys, just just because this is a very minor point, um, it's not really worth debating, but I want a yes or no from both of you. Is Coco a musical? Actually, I don't I don't think so. Right. Okay. That's I would I would say that too as well. It's not. What's your thinking there? Like the the like the music is present and it's good. Um, but I wouldn't say musical. 
Like Lion King is more musical. Like they they stopped the movie to break out into song and dance. Right, 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 this right. Is quite yeah. the same. This is more akin to maybe like Whiplash, where the you have performances because the performances are integral to the plot. Um, but the movie isn't stopping. Yeah, yeah. I was very curious. Yeah, to see what I a hundred percent follow you, but that was a very interesting example to use. I, I couldn't think of anything else off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, Whiplash is a correct example. It is just not the one I would have thought of off it, the top of my head. Um, I'm off the cup here, Drew. <laughs> fair, fair enough. I did, I did put you on the spot. Do you guys have any other thoughts? Super, super deep that I was really, really intrigued by was. Um, so this is there, they take place in the afterlife. So I, when you die, this is where you go, this afterlife place. But they, they talk about this, this really, really interesting, um, theme of remembrance. And when, when everybody that you knew on earth eventually forgets you, something else happens to you as, as somebody who's already passed, something else happens. And I was like, that is fascinating. That is a fascinating concept that I never thought about. And how deep is that? It's absolutely horrifying is what it is. <laughs> I, I was fascinated. I'm like, that is, I've never, well, ever, ever I think I think the horrifying like part is the fact that the afterlife is controlled essentially by the TSA. <laughs> yeah, yeah for, that is a really good way to put it. <laughs> if I show up and I don't have my passport. Oh, man. Oh, Charlie, boy. He, Charlie Heaton of Stranger Things would have a problem getting into the afterlife. That's all I'm saying. I thought that was so interesting, though. Like, oh, nobody else on, you know, I'm officially forgotten on Earth and then something happens to him. I was like, what? Holy cow. Bringing up that TSA point kind of transitions nicely into some just like, not nitpicky questions per se, but things that were off the top of my head about this afterlife um, that I, the person I saw the movie with and I had a discussion about afterwards. Um, first of all, this afterlife, is there, there's clearly no kind of judgment or anything, right? Like good people and bad people are all in the same place. Because yeah, we've clearly. got murderers hanging out with just grandmas. Yeah. yeah. Right? That's very true. Mm-hmm. So I, I I found that interesting because I don't think we've seen a lot of versions like that. Usually we have our heaven and hell very easily defined for us. But this is just an afterlife in general. Second, when you go into the afterlife, do you go in as the age that you died? Because think about it at the end. <laughs> it looks yeah, that, way. that was the one like scratch my head moment when Coco dies and then is this old lady version, but everyone else in the movie is yeah, a but younger see, version but see, it themselves. checks out. It checks out because Hector died at a young age. Um, back in the, those days... So did De La Cruz. Yeah, De La Cruz died at a young age. Back in those days, people died decently young. So um, Hector's ex-wife probably died around age 50, and she looked like a woman in her 50. You know what I mean? It kind of checked yeah, out. Yeah, no, it all, it all worked out. That was my take on it. They just never said anything. Yeah. yeah. It would have been a nice detail if they went into a little bit more about it. But then you're just weighing down the movie with exposition. I don't really think there's a way to sneak that into the movie and it isn't integral to the plot. But I thought right. it was an interesting detail. Yeah, very. It's another thing where Pixar is not talking down to us. They're treating us like grown-ups, and we this is a discussion we can have on our own and it's an interesting discussion to have on our own. Well, we've had a very interesting discussion overall here. Um, Jake, let's start with you. Any final things to say about Coco? Um, it it doesn't quite reach that level of perfection that they've hit in the past. They got they got very they got close. Definitely, definitely another win for Pixar. Um, another really good movie that if if you enjoy animated movies or movies in general, you'll probably enjoy this. It's a very well rounded, very likable, audience pleasing movie. 
it just misses that it just doesn't quite hit that one more step to be considered like like one of the greats it does so many things right it's such a good movie it'll hold up really well for a long time right and um you know in the day of the dead topic is so interesting i'm glad they covered it i think they covered it well and i'm really glad you know we're talking about it today it was a very very good movie nate final thoughts uh, again, guys, this is this is a really great movie, and not only is it bringing attention to a whole culture that I wasn't aware of and I didn't know too much about, and not only making it interesting, but making it fun, making me love, cry, laugh, the, the whole nine yards. It, it does a great job bringing up a lot of emotions. It's a return to form for Pixar after some uh, sketchier ones with the good dinosaur and their recent sequels. So I'm really, really glad that this original concept and original story is doing such a great job critically. And I really recommend that you guys see it. Um, We went through this whole review and this is probably because the two of you have not seen this movie, but there was another major animated movie that came out a couple years ago about the day of the dead called the book of life, which is another really good animated movie. It's got, it's really interestingly animated. It tackles similar themes it is a different movie than Coco, but I recommend everyone check that one out as well. Um, and what, I, what I'm saying is that the Day of the Dead has turned out to be a very profitable and very interesting topic to cover. Jake, you're right. It's a very fascinating thing um, to watch a movie about because there's so many themes and different things you can tackle with it, and Coco hits every mark it needs to. Um, it's just This is just a wonderful, really excellent animated movie. It's not quite a masterpiece, but I don't think it's really trying to be if that makes sense it is try it is perfect for the the movie it is trying to be which just happens to be not entirely ambitious um it's a great movie it really check it out please if you have not already we're talking to you trump oh you man you can watch this oh man let's not dive into that before the end of the show please <laughs> he can he could can- <laughs> bring his taco bowl with him um show up 40 <laughs> minutes late though as we've mentioned anyway That'll do it for this week's episode of The Middle Seats. But before we say adios, Nate Lungarini, where can they find us on the internet this week? <laughs> All righty. So here's how you can get in touch with us. Please like, comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Middle Seats, so you can get notifications on when our new episodes come out. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, both at The Middle Seats. And our email for any questions, comments, or suggestions is themiddleseatshow at gmail.com. Anything you can do to help the channel grow is greatly appreciated. Be sure to check out our spinoff show if you haven't already, Freeze Frame, where we head back in time and review something that's a blast for the past. It's usually something in theme with our main review. Last week, when we reviewed Justice League, we talked about Zack Snyder's 300. This week, in honor of Coco, we're talking about the 1992 animated classic, Aladdin. So jump on your magic carpet and look for that later in the week. Next week is kind of a toss-up. Um, there are no guaranteed wide releases coming out. There's some really interesting indie stuff coming out, but we don't know if we're going to get it in our local area. So it's a bit of a crapshoot what we're going to review. Um, it most likely will be something indie. It could be three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. It could be Lady Bird. It could be Roman J. Israel, the disaster artist, Shape of Water. A lot of options. Look for updates throughout the week. We don't know yet, but we will keep you posted. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Middle Seeds Podcast. For Nate Longarini and for Jake Hensler, I'm Andrew Oje. Keep that seat warm, everyone. We'll be back soon.